Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With me today is Salim Yakub, who is the Director of the Center for Cold War Studies and International History at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and the author of a brand new book, Imperfect Strangers, Americans, Arabs, and U.S. Middle East Relations in the 1970s. Uh, Salim, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be here. So tell me about this book, uh, Imperfect Strangers. Strangers. Yeah, well, uh, as the title suggests, it's a study of U.S.-Arab relations in the 1970s, and uh, I look at the relationship in a very comprehensive fashion, uh, so I definitely do examine uh, political and diplomatic relations, but I also uh, broaden out to look at uh, cultural, uh, psychological, uh, demographic exchanges, and essentially I'm arguing uh, that the 1970s were a pivotal decade in the uh, overall U.S.-Arab relationship. And if you want to understand the course that that relationship has taken subsequently, you know, including in the, in the 21st century, uh, where you have on the one hand um, sort of escalating um, and quite intense animosity between the U.S. government and much of Arab political society, but on the other hand, uh, a situation in which people of Arab and Muslim dissent are uh, are recognized, though highly contested, element or part of the American um, uh, community. If you want to understand that curious state of affairs, you need to look closely at what happened in the 1970s. And there's a lot going on in the 1970s. And so where do you you start off? Do you begin with uh, the 73 war, or do you start before then? A bit before that. I actually... um, uh, start in the late 60s. I mean, the 1967 okay. war, of course, is a major watershed uh, in Middle Eastern history, but uh, also in terms of the U.S. relationship uh, to that region because um, the United States becomes much more uh, supportive of Israel. It becomes the principal arms supplier after, the, uh, after, after, after France uh, mm-hmm. stops playing that role, and it becomes much more um, central to uh, the possibility of some sort of uh, Arab-Israeli um, peace agreement. Um, and so uh, the, the profile of the United States becomes much more prominent in the late 60s and, and into the early 70s, but it, it gets even higher um, after 1973. So, so 73 is certainly another major watershed, and and the relationship moves into uh, another register after that point. I mean, it, it seems like the uh, the the oil crisis uh, would uh, was a real turning point in yes. terms of especially negative American views mm-hmm. of the sure. Arab world and the stereotypes yeah. of the oil sheikhs and that sort of thing. So, how does that play out in this broader context of where you see mm-hmm. this as 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 being pivotal and changing? These, yeah. these trends. Well, I mean, in, in a moment ago, I, I talked about this kind of dualistic yeah. um, uh, phenomenon where there's, you know, intense animosity and friction on the one hand, but, you know, some measure of accommodation on the other, which I don't want to exaggerate, but which is, is, is detectable. And that does play itself out uh, in the whole uh, petrodollars um, phenomenon as well. So, uh, or even more broadly, just the, you know, the emergence of the Arab world is a major player in global oil politics. So the certainly the Arab oil embargo, the uh, related increase in the price of oil, and then the fact that um, Arab governments and uh, individuals 
and institutions have a lot of money to throw around and start investing heavily in the United States. I mean, it, certainly that on the one hand um, generates a great deal of um, anxiety and um, animosity within the United States. You have this kind of nativist mm -hmm. uh, um, fear that uh, wealthy Arabs are buying up the country and that sort of thing. Kind of similar to the sorts of fears that you saw with respect to Japan in the 1980s. And there would be all these stories about, mm -hmm. you know, Arab countries trying to buy Rockefeller Center or, you know, some other, you know, major um, uh, American institution or icon. There was even a, a, a story about uh, some wealthy Arab thinking of making inquiries about buying the Alamo. So, so, um, so, so you have that, but you also and this was and this was being driven by the media of the day. And, sure. Yeah. And being the media, stoked I mean, and fomented by. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the this was a very a major story in the media. Uh, it was kind of irresistible. Just the 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 just from the for from a um, kind of narrative or human interest standpoint, you've got these strange foreigners uh, uh, who have uh, unfamiliar customs coming in and you know see, seeking to ins insinuate themselves mm -hmm. into American life. Um, so there is, there is this whole discourse about Arabs coming to buy up the country. And um, the, the dominant perspective is, is a very negative and hostile one. But there's an element of, that, of the whole petrodollar story that um, makes, uh, that opens up possibilities for some kind of accommodation. So, for example, I mean, there are a number of figures in American public life especially at the elite level, um, the international business figures, um, the Treasury Department, um, uh, econo economists, uh, you know, people who opine on, the, on these subjects from a, you know, on a kind of broad plane, you know, from a high, from an elite perspective, they, they're trying to reassure the public and, and they're arguing that the investment of petrodollars is actually a good thing. Um, for the U.S. economy, and it's also uh, good for global stability and for U.S. relations with Arab countries. The argument is that if Arab countries have a stake in the success of the U.S. economy, then they'll be less likely to try to sabotage it again. Um, and then there are also, well, as, as uh, you and your colleagues know well, um, Arab governments and institutions endowing uh, Middle East study centers in American universities, which um, helps to nurture a you know constituencies in the United States that um, that have a more um, nuanced and curious perspective with respect to the mm -hmm. Arab world. In some in some cases, a, a, a sympathetic perspective. So so petrodollar. There's a different side to the petrodollar yeah. story that that um, a makes the makes uh, some level of accommodation possible. And there's a flip side of it, too, which is this is also the era of Anwar Sadat and yes. the Peace Initiative, and mm -hmm. uh, there, there's quite an American cultural fascination oh, yeah. with yeah. Sadat around yeah. this time, which is... You know, quite in contrast to this, uh, the petrodollar, oh, yeah. the, the oil shake yes. stereotypes on the other side. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, this is, uh, th there's another element, or the, another iteration of this argument I make about how, you know, geopolitical developments that generate ill will between the two societies also, at the same time, 
uh, create possibilities for better relations and for more favorable perspectives. And it, it plays itself out in the petrodollar story, but it also does in Arab-Israeli diplomacy. And it, as I argue in the book, you know, it starts with, the, with Kissinger in the post-73 period when he uh, launches his shuttle diplomacy, mm-hmm. which I argue is essentially aimed at fortifying the Israeli position and actually shielding Israel from international pressure to withdraw fully from the territories occupied in 1967. Nonetheless, the very fact that Kissinger is engaged in this diplomacy uh, means that he's spending a lot of time in the Arab world. He's um, getting to know Arab leaders. He's speaking of those Arab leaders in respectful tones. He's, you know, he's actually physically embracing them in ways that you know, cause a, a bit of a stir in the U.S. media. All of that um, encourages the U.S. media and, and other um, opinion leaders in the United States to portray the Arab world in a you know, somewhat, not, you know, it's not a huge change, but in a somewhat more favorable light. And there's a similar sort of thing that takes place in, during Camp David, where it's the same kind of irony, where it's a, a diplomatic process that has the uh, result of alienating much of the Arab world. Because as you know, the um, you know the vast majority of people in the Arab world uh, were very very sharply critical of Camp David. You know, saw it as a wrong turn, as a as a move away from any kind of uh, just peace. Nonetheless, uh, the fact that a figure like Anwar Sadat, who was very telegenic and had um, uh, good relations with the American press and was very skilled at cultivating. Um, the U.S. media, the fact that he was the central figure did help to generate more positive imagery surrounding the Arab world. So there's a real kind of uh, kind of dual trends going here. Yes, exactly. Now, this is going out over the course of the uh, over the course of the 1970s, mm-hmm. and so the shuttle diplomacy leads to Camp David, right. leads to, to to that peace agreement and the like. Um, you also then this is you know spanning the Nixon to the Carter presidency, and so Nixon, I remember, you know, had the hero's welcome, you know, at the time in, of Watergate, yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. and then that's actually a very striking image. Oh yeah, that's hard. Yeah. You know, it's hard that's to actually, imagine today. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it right now yeah. at the front cover of the book. Um, and then you go to Carter, who, yes. you know, his relations with the Arab world were, you know, a little more. Tenuous. Yeah, I mean, well, Carter undergoes a bit of a tra- of a of an evolution, and he he actually comes into office determined to set aside this bilateral emphasis that Henry Kissinger mm-hmm. had um, put forward, where you know Kissinger was the one who really got the ball rolling as far as a, a bilateral Egyptian-Israeli peace process was concerned, um, and you know took it a certain distance, and then. Um, uh, left office when Ford did. So um, Carter comes in, and he's actually initially determined to scrap that whole bilateral approach and go for something much more comprehensive. And so for a period of several months in 1977, his first year in office, he is trying to uh, convene uh, an international conference in Geneva attended by Israel, the um, Arab states, some uh, Palestinians, not necessarily uh, members of the PLO, but Palestinians whom the PLO uh, would not object to, mm-hmm. 
and the great powers, and they would all hammer out this um, comprehensive settlement, in, essentially entailing a, an Israeli withdrawal to the um, uh, 1967 lines, you know, with, with some modifications here and there, um, and some kind of a, of a settlement for the Palestinians. Uh, Carter was thinking more in terms of a homeland, mm -hmm. uh, probably federated with Jordan, rather than an independent Palestinian state. But nonetheless, uh, that's quite an advance from what any previous U.S. president had uh, imagined. So, for, so actually, Carter, in his first year, was uh, talking about the Arab-Israeli conflict and its uh, and uh, its conceivable resolution in ways that were generally um, more favorable to the broad currents of Arab opinion mm -hmm. than to Israeli opinion. And in fact, Israel and um, American supporters of Israel were you know, very um, uneasy or even hostile um, uh, when Carter started talking in this way. Um, he, for a number of reasons that I can get into, that doesn't happen. And he, Carter, is essentially obliged to complete the bilateral process that Kissinger had begun, and that's what Camp David was. Mm -hmm. And once he does that, then his standing in the Arab world becomes far less favorable. And then, I don't know if the book gets to this point or if it's within mm -hmm. the scope, but then, of course, the Iranian Revolution mm -hmm. becomes yes. like the, the major pivot point yes. then to this entire new set of strategic and also cultural sure. dynamics. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, even though this is obviously not coming out of the Arab world itself, exactly. yeah. it's, um, it has all kinds of spillover effects with respect to the Arab world. Um, so, so one of them is the strategic um, one, where the United States loses a you know, major ally in the Gulf region, and you know, it's mm -hmm. a region that is, has enormous uh, strategic and uh, economic uh, value to the United States and its allies. And so um, in the aftermath of the uh, Shah's ouster, and especially following the uh, hostage crisis um, where, where the Americans are taken hostage uh, in Iran in uh, November 1979, the, and, and then shortly after that, just, a, just weeks after that, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, which uh, further heightens American concerns about the security of the Gulf. So in that context, the Carter administration um, adopts a much more hawkish position with respect to that region. And act, you know, with the Carter Doctrine actually declares that the United States stands ready to mm -hmm. use its own forces to repel any outside um, move onto the, um, onto the Gulf region. Um, so, and, and, and it does, you know, as Carter starts building up the rapid deployment force and it concludes basing agreements with a number of countries in the surrounding region. And so overall, you've got a much more uh, militarized and anxious American posture with respect to the Gulf. And, and that, of course, has all kinds of uh, implications for U.S.-Arab relations. But then the, culturally, um, the, the, the Iranian Revolution, and especially the hostage crisis, um, generates you know, a huge amount of animosity towards Islam. And, and just it, it puts the whole notion of Islamic radicalism into uh, mm -hmm. circulation in the United States in ways that it hadn't before, in large yeah. part because as a, as a global phenomenon, it hadn't really existed in the same way. 
So that's going to have all kinds of implications for the status of Arab Americans. Um, I mean, on the uh, for one thing, there's not all that much um, not on the part of many ordinary Americans. There's a lot of fuzziness over who is what. You know, are you Arab? Are you Muslim? What's the difference? And and also, there's not much recognition of the fact that at this time, uh, the overwhelming majority of Arab Americans are Christian. Um, and they're still, in, you know, Christians are still in, in the majority of, among Arab Americans, but the majority is not quite so great. Nonetheless, there's a lot of slippage and um, uh, conflation of, yeah. the, of those identities. And so it becomes inescapable, you know, regardless of whether an Arab American is Muslim or if he or she is Muslim, whether devout, it, it really um, they, it becomes impossible to... Um, ignore questions of, uh, you know, how one relates to uh, Islam and uh, whether one is uh, aligned with terrorists and, yeah. and that sort of thing. And that then sets the threshold for the 1980s and the Reagan era. Yes. Let, let me ask you then kind of one last question, um, which is, you know, having spent all this time immersed in studying the 1970s, you know, what are the lessons you take away from that for where we are now? Mm-hmm. What, what would you say, as an historian of the 1970s, that we need mm-hmm. to understand in yeah. terms of where mm-hmm. we stand today and the relationship between America and Arabs? Well, that's a difficult one. And it's, uh, you know, as a historian, I, um, I often um, am reluctant to uh, opine too directly on what's going on today and, and, and to offer my advice. I mean, I, I do think that the centrality of the Palestine issue and the broader Arab-Israeli struggle to Arab thinking um, you know, remains you know, very clear. Um, and there certainly are a whole range of additional crises and issues that have um, arisen uh, you know, in the, over the decades, and, and I'm certainly not one who argues that if you solve the, Palest- the Palestine problem, everything else will fall into place. But I do think um, a, um, a, a very sincere and um, dedicated effort to find some kind of resolution to that issue would make n- a number of the other problems in the region that now seem so intractable a little bit easier to deal with, uh, e- easier to address. So that's certainly one, one takeaway. And I guess, you know, more generally, the, um, the intense anxiety and fear that people in the um, Arab world have about uh, outside encroachment, outside domination. I mean, it's, it's such a, a central part of Arab identity um, to, I mean, so often Arabs define themselves against uh, outside um, you know, with, you know, in opposition to or mm-hmm. tension with, with outside forces. And any um, policy initiative that feeds into that narrative you know, runs the risk of making existing problems much, much worse. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, this, we've been speaking with uh, Salim Yacoub of the University of California at Santa Barbara, author of a brand new book, Imperfect Strangers, Americans, Arabs, and U.S.-Middle East Relations in the 1970s. Salim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It's been my pleasure. 